The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax or investment advice or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com forward slash disclosures. Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Costello. Today's guest is David Haber. David is a general partner at A16Z, where he focuses on technology investment in financial services. David was previously a senior executive in firm-wide strategy at Goldman Sachs, where he helped lead partnerships, new ventures, and M&A. Before joining the firm, David was the founder and CEO of Bond Street, which aimed to transform small business lending through technology, data, and design. Bond Street was acquired by Goldman Sachs in 2017. In today's episode, you'll hear about David's investing theses, including opportunities between fields of expertise, such as between healthcare and fintech and between gaming and payments, why David's bias in fintech investing is towards companies that lead with software or with a network, how David's career has spanned across operating, entrepreneurship and investing roles, and how seeing the world from these different perspectives has shaped his approach today, and also what led David to form his previous company, Bond Street, and his key learnings from that experience. Hi, David. Welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Hey, Kaylee. Great to be here. I'm actually in Los Angeles today. Uh, I'm in town for a, a GP offsite that we have this week, So, but excited to be with you. Very exciting. Um, to start with, I'd love to talk a bit about the outlook for fintech. What sectors do you expect to continue to grow and what sectors do you think will find it more challenging in the current climate? Yeah, look, I think there's still a t- tremendous amount of opportunity for fintech uh, across a lot of different categories. Obviously, you know, with this current rate environment, um, you know, fintech companies that are more balance sheet intensive or kind of more rate dependent are going to have a more challenging time as the kind of unit economics get squeezed by higher costs of capital. Um, at the same time, I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for, you know, fintech companies that lead with what I would call software or a network, really that are solving kind of workflow problems across different industries. And finding opportunities to kind of layer in financial products to drive modernization, retention, you know, engagement. Um, so really excited about kind of the intersection of fintech and lots of different industry categories. Um, I'm sure we'll get into this in more detail, but the other place that we've been spending quite a bit of time is are on companies, again, solving kind of workflow challenges for large financial institutions. It's been really interesting just to see kind of the culture of these institutions change and their willingness to adopt kind of new third-party technologies. Um, it's just creating like a really interesting moment for, you know, lots of fintech companies to sell into big FIs. Absolutely. Um, and I guess you touched on this a little bit, but can you tell us about some of your current investing theses? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one of my um, lines that I often repeat, but I, I genuinely believe, which is why I say it often, is um, is that opportunities live between fields of expertise. And I really enjoy exploring those intersections. And, you know, in some ways, I sort of view this as, um, you know, a metaphor for my career, having sort of lived between being an entrepreneur and an operator and an investor. But in many ways, it also extends to fintech because I really have always viewed fintech much more as a horizontal than a vertical. And as I was sort of saying before, you know, fintech, again, is in many ways becoming kind of a business model that's embedded everywhere. And so I spent a lot of time kind of investing at the intersections of fintech and other categories. And it's been, I would say a particularly um, fun way to invest here at you know Andreessen Horowitz, where we have such deep domain experts across different industry verticals 
So, you know, for example, Julie Yu, who leads our health tech practice, and I have been spending quite a bit of time exploring the intersection of healthcare and fintech. I think there's a tremendous amount of problems and a lot of opportunity, you know, at that at that intersection. Have also made investments at the intersection of fintech and gaming, uh, which is kind of an unusual one with my partner, John Live, who leads our gaming fund in vertical software and fintech and collaborate often with you know, Christina Shen, who does much of our SaaS investing. And then I would say I spend you know, a lot of time, at, as I was sort of just describing in, um, you know, for lack of a better word, like wonkier, you know, kind of very financial services specific opportunities, um, you know, especially those in, in kind of capital markets or where kind of an understanding and a network in and across kind of large financial institutions are quite helpful. Um, I would say my bias for fintech investing, however, these days, and I sort of said this earlier, are those that lead with software or lead with what I would call a network. It, it's hard to find, but you know, I think many of the kind of um, most interesting fintech companies, uh, you know, of the past call it decade, are those that have kind of true network effects or really have become you know kind of platform businesses. Um, and so, you know, we seek to try to find those you know, opportunities across different industry categories. Gaming is not one that we have talked much about on this podcast before. I'd be curious to get a brief overview of like what some of the opportunities that you're looking at there are. Yeah, it's it's sort of an unusual, you know, company, uh, but a really exciting one. Um, so John and I invested in a business called Carry First, um, which is both really a gaming and payments business based in South Africa. And the analogous business that maybe some folks in the in the audience may know is there's a, a pretty large technology company uh, in Southeast Asia called C S E A, and Carry First is sort of following a similar playbook to C. So C started out as a games publisher, and they famously licensed the game League of Legends in Southeast Asia, which was one of the most popular is one of the most popular you know games in the world. They ended up creating their own game called Free Fire, which I think became one of the most profitable games on the planet. And they sort of used that user base and that and those cash flows to sort of channel into building a payments business called C Money and a large marketplace business called Shopee, which has become a competitor to, for example, Mercado Libre in Brazil. Um, so Carry First is sort of executing a similar strategy by initially, you know, really being a games publisher. So they license intellectual property from, you know, leading game studios around the world. They're also in the process of building their own games and commercializing those on the continent in Africa. To do that, they had to build a pretty sophisticated sort of payments orchestration system that integrates across all the disparate sort of payment methods across the 54 countries in Africa, pretty fragmented sort of payments ecosystem. And then again, they're sort of channeling this user base uh, you know, into both the payments business and building you know, kind of a commerce business you know, over time as well. And so you know, again, kind of an unusual business, but has sort of this reinforcing loop between gaming and payments and commerce um, that is quite interesting. You know, Cordell and Lucy are the two founders. Cordell has an amazing story. You know, grew up in Sierra Leone. Um, you know, moved to the U.S. Ended up going to Stanford and worked for the founder of Carlyle to launch their first private equity fund in Africa, and then quit. You know, his you know fancy private equity job to go build this company. You know, four or five years ago, and has just been an amazing. You know, kind of capital allocator and 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 CEO of this business, and um, yeah, really excited for the for the company. And again, it was a, it was a good example of kind of a collaboration between John and I. Who you know, John um, is a deep expert in the gaming space. Uh, you know, was a PM at Riot, had led a lot of the uh, investing activities for 
um, you know, Tencent in the US. Um, it was interesting because he had seen a prior round of the company and uh, I don't think I had joined the firm yet. And I believe he had passed because he's like, you know, I don't really understand this payments thing. I honestly think if I would have seen it alone, I might not have understood the gaming thing. And and yet, you know, by kind of locking arms, um, it made for a really exciting opportunity. I think we've been able to deliver, hopefully, you know, unique value to the business, kind of bringing, you know, both of our areas of expertise together. It's a really interesting intersection. And um, you've had an interesting career as an operator, an entrepreneur, and an investor. How has seeing the world from these sort of three perspectives shaped your investing today? Well, I think first it's given me a lot of empathy <laughs> for for all sides of the table. Um, but you're right. You know, I started uh, you know investing in fintech back in 2011. Uh, you know, I was a whatever 23 year old you know analyst or associate at, at Spark Capital back then, and. Uh, you know, I'm really grateful for that opportunity because it was, I think it was basically seven general partners and me. Um, and so, you know, while I may not have had an equal vote, you know, I tried to have an equal voice sitting around the table and, uh, you know, we'd see every investment and, uh, you know, debate the merits of any deal. And I think I learned a lot of the kind of pattern recognition of investing and what makes a good company, you know, from that experience and, you know, big credit to them and they're, they're amazing firm and, and great pickers. Uh, and it's really kind of where I started kind of going down the fintech rabbit hole. Um, you know, so one of the companies that I ended up helping source and and seed with uh, a, a partner there named Mo Koifman was a company called Plaid. You know, I don't think we kind of understood the kind of impact that Plaid would ultimately have on kind of catalyzing this sort of you know, last decade of kind of fintech, um, you know, company creation. But uh, but that's def- that company in particular has definitely informed a lot of my kind of investing and you know, what I look for, certainly, you know, in companies going forward, um, you know, I ended up, I always thought of myself more as an entrepreneur than as an investor. And so I ended up leaving back in 2013 to start a fintech company uh, with my friend Peyton, who um, had been a few years older than me at school, had studied computer science. He had worked at D Shaw for a few years and then ultimately was running engineering at Venmo. And they ended up getting acquired by Braintree and then PayPal at the end of 2013. And so I ended up pulling him you know, out of there to go start a fintech company called Bond Street, which was in the small business lending space. And quickly, I mean, the catalyst for Bond Street um, was simply that, you know, I was running around New York, often bumping into fast growing physical products businesses or services companies that, you know, uh, weren't a right fit for venture capital necessarily, but in many cases were doing millions of dollars a year in revenue, were profitable, were growing, couldn't raise bank financing. And then as you dug into kind of the problem space of, of small business lending, it really hadn't changed at you know these banks for 50 years. And yet in that moment in 2013, a lot of the data that we thought we would need to sort of understand the financial health of these small businesses was just becoming available online via API. So, you know, Intuit had just launched the QuickBooks API. We knew we could write integrations into the credit bureaus. The IRS had just started accepting e-signature so we could get a what was called a 45060 tax transcript programmatically from the government. <laughs> And then, you know, as I mentioned, we had just seeded plans so you could get access to, you know, bank transaction data and be able to validate, you know, actual cash transactions against sort of self-reported financials and tax filings. And ultimately, the hope is to be able to deliver, you know, kind of a better, um, you know, customer experience to the entrepreneur and ultimately make, you know, credit decisions much more quickly and efficiently. You know, we never raised a ton of equity for that business. We raised something like $11.5 million in equity, but $900 million in debt capacity. So, you know, <laughs> tremendous amount of debt capital, you know, built an amazing team, uh, which is what I'm most proud of by far, many of whom are now actually fintech entrepreneurs themselves, which is just 
incredible to see. Um, and then we ultimately ended up selling that business to, to Goldman Sachs in 2017 and got merged into what became Marcus, um, which was the consumer business, you know, at Goldman at the time. You know, Peyton, my co-founder had, you know, I would call a real job. <laughs> he inherited, uh, I think, 70 engineers or something to manage. Um, I had a more amorphous kind of strategy M&A role and really kind of took it as an opportunity to kind of explore the firm. You know, I, I didn't have much fear. And I just started kind of firing off emails to, you know, all the people. So I think it was, you know, Marty Chavez was a CFO at the time, the heads of investment banking, the heads of asset management, just being like, hey, I'm here, like, would love to be helpful. Like, what do you need? And, um, you know, ended up starting kind of sourcing deals for different pockets of capital around the firm. We put a bunch of money into Carta, you know, out of the sort of balance sheet, strategic pool of capital. You know, we helped SEMA, who's now on our team, lead the, you know, Series B in a, a fintech company in Argentina called Walla. And, uh, and ultimately spent the last two years there in kind of a firm-wide strategy seat, um, working closely with a woman named Stephanie Cohen, who was the chief strategy officer of, at the time, and she was reporting to the CEO, David Solomon. So it's just a really unique kind of bird's eye view into really kind of the inner sanctum of Goldman Sachs. So we produced every board deck, you know, we kind of knew what was happening across every division. And it was an interesting opportunity to understand, you know, A, what leadership looks like in a big company, you know, how do you actually get shit done? You know, and also like, what are they uniquely good at and what are the things that they're not so good at, you know, and, and where are there opportunities for, you know, fintech companies to compete or opportunities to solve real problems, you know, that have yet to be solved inside of, you know, a large institution like Goldman Sachs, which on a relative basis is very progressive and has a lot of resources, but there's, a you know, a lot of other large financial institutions around the world uh, who have far fewer resources and lack sort of that talent base. Um, and where I think software and technology and, and fintech, uh, you know, can play a very significant role. So that was a long-winded answer, but it gave you sort of a sense of kind of at least the three sides of the table that I've, I've sat on. And in many ways, Andreessen is sort of a mashup <laughs> of all of those, you know, kind of prior experiences in, in, in one firm, which has been really fun. Do you think you're starting to see these larger financial institutions, you know, bring in more fintech at the moment? Like, how's that trending? 100%. And this was... Um, something I've certainly observed, you know, inside of Goldman, um, where the culture of these institutions were, were changing, even in just those three years, um, you know, there used to be a very strong culture, especially at, at, at Goldman Sachs, where everything kind of had to be built in-house. Just to poke it a little bit, they still use their own email client that they've developed in-house. They don't use, you know, Outlook or Gmail, uh, which is kind of amazing. Um, so I think they've sort of learned the lessons like, hey, we probably don't need to build our own word processing and email clients. However, there's a lot of other areas where they recognize that they can leverage third-party technology and, you know, to drive efficiencies, to deliver a bunch of better customer experiences, to uh, kind of simplify the organization, you know, for their clients. Um, but I think the challenge um, is often connecting the dots between fintech and these large financial institutions. And I felt this certainly as a founder, and then I saw this certainly inside of Goldman Sachs. I think, you know, for too long, fintech and traditional finance are these like parallel universes you know, that didn't talk to each other enough. And I honestly think it's such a missed opportunity on both sides because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're increasingly investing in companies that aren't necessarily trying to compete with all the financial institutions for, you know, balance sheet or cost of capital. They're trying to solve real technology and workflow problems and sell into these institutions. And then conversely, these institutions have, you know, amazing scale, you know, significant, you know, reach and credibility with their clients. 
and can be great partners if you know the right people, right? And so one of the kind of big areas of focus, you know, here at Andreessen is really trying to be a bridge between those two universes. And in many ways, being in New York City, I, I try to physically be the bridge between sort of Silicon Valley and, and New York or Wall Street in particular. Um, and so we spent a lot of time, you know, building kind of deep connectivity and what I would call like authentic kind of non-transactional relationships with all the senior decision makers at basically every major financial institution in America. And so, you know, um, on a regular basis now we're hosting dinners with, you know, the CEOs of these large institutions, they'll bring their executive leadership team, you know, often the division heads across these different firms. And then we'll curate a group of, you know, call it, you know, a dozen to two dozen, you know, portfolio and non-portfolio companies that align with their strategic priorities and just have an informal dinner where, again, a seed stage founder can be sit, you know, s- seated next to the, you know, division head and, and conversely, the, the leaders at these institutions can understand what's happening on the frontier. And again, we're just trying to be sort of this clearinghouse in some ways between those relationships and, uh, you know, helpful to both sides. And it's been a, a tremendous, I think, success. Uh, and we've had, you know, very high NPS, let's say, from, uh, from both sides of the coin, which has been um, super valuable. And you've mentioned before that one thing that you would have done differently with Bond Street was to lead with software instead of leading with a financial product. Can you tell us more about what happened and what you think you should have done instead? Yeah, many, many lessons uh, learned from from building that business. Uh, that was certainly one. But, you know, I think the reflection is we were offering term loans. So we were trying to help small businesses, you know, Main Street small businesses with growth financing. So, you know, Joe Coffee in New York wanted to open a new location. We were providing, you know, several hundred thousand dollars of financing to help them open up a new storefront. And our and our loans were called at one to three years in duration, $150,000 in average, and call it, you know, in the low teens, you know, interest rates. The challenge with that product was um, it was a very infrequent transaction, right? How often does the entrepreneur need to open a new location or seek out growth financing? maybe once, maybe twice a year, right? If you're really growing quickly. Um, and so the opportunity to sort of identify the entrepreneur at that transactional point of intent, right? The window essentially to sell our product was very narrow. You had to find, you know, Jonathan Rubinstein, the owner of Joe Coffee in New York, you know, in the week before, the month before that he was ready to sort of sign a lease, you know, for a new space. And ultimately the sort of cost of acquiring that, you know, customer in that sort of very narrow window of time was very high, right? And so what I always wished I had was sort of a unique distribution or uh, you know, avenue to essentially find that entrepreneur at that transactional point of intent and understand ideally kind of the approvability of that customer and be able to affect risk. And so what do I mean by that, right? Ideally, you had you know, some sort of piece of software that small business owners were using to run the financials of their business. We ultimately, I think too late, built a software product called Beacon that you can think of sort of as like a mint.com for for small business owners. It was essentially a a PFM that you could sync all of your business accounts into, and we would give you a good understanding of how your business was performing, and you could use our tools to sort of set budgets and manage your cash flow. Now, strategically, the opportunity for that was how do we widen the top of the funnel how do we sort of build a user base and then nurture that user base into becoming a transactional customer over time? And how do I have visibility into their financials to really be able to push a loan 
instead of waiting for them to apply and to pull, you know, a loan from us. And I think it would have, had we launched it earlier or we had a different sort of go-to-market, you know, leading with software, I think it would have allowed us ideally to acquire that customer much more efficiently, um, you know, again, be able to push financial products to the highest quality customers who, uh, you know, maybe were the lowest risk, you know, or where we could sort of identify, you know, the risk, um, uh, you know, much more efficiently than trying to acquire a customer kind of in the ether, which is what we were doing. Makes sense. There's a lot of opportunities, analogous businesses that we've already invested in that sort of uh, live up to this thesis or, or sort of are aligned with this thesis. You know, two just in my portfolio are a company called Adaptive here in New York City, which is building, essentially billing software for uh, general contractors in the home building space. You can think of them as like almost a, a mini Procore. Um, yeah, they basically help general contractors better manage invoices and payments with their network of subcontractors. And so today it's a SaaS business, right? They they built essentially sort of an accounting and invoicing and, and kind of reconciliation product, you know, for GCs, and they pay them, you know, on a monthly basis in a SaaS fee for, for doing so. However, you know, they're constantly paying these subcontractors and the subcontractors are waiting to be paid. And so there's an opportunity to sort of, you know, accelerate payments or factor those receivables or extend credit, you know, to the subcontractors. But importantly, you're seeing sort of the the, the cash flows in the network you're not just going to the subcontractor sort of in a vacuum and extending credit. You now know the relationship that they have with the general contractor. And and that just ha- has a dramatic impact on the quality of a lending business and the quality of the risk that you might you know, be willing to extend. Juniper is a similar business in the healthcare space, but between healthcare providers and insurance companies. And so they have built software to essentially build, you know, submit insurance claims pro- programmatically to the insurance providers. They get paid you know, three to 5% for doing the what's called like revenue cycle management for these highly recurring sort of healthcare providers. But again, importantly, they understand the sort of statistical probability of a timing of the repayments and reimbursements from the insurance company. So if they chose, they could extend working capital back to the providers and essentially factor this healthcare receivable. And so again, it's sort of about, you know, again, ideally leading with software and sort of understanding this network versus sort of just advancing alone kind of in the ether to a, to a customer without sort of any context of their financial health. Makes sense. Um, and are there any other learnings from Bond Street and your time at Goldman that have influenced you as an investor? Tremendously. <laughs> um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think certainly from the Bond Street experience, as I said earlier, like your company is really only as uh, valuable or successful as the quality of your team. My colleague Alex always likes to um, to say, or his sort of pithy line, and for what he looked for in entrepreneurs is, you know, can they materialize labor and capital? You know, that's ultimately kind of the job of the founder, and it's definitely quality we look for. It's like, can they recruit, you know, incredibly talented people to join them? And it's often indicative, you know, in the founding team. You know, do they have sort of, you know, founder market fit? Have they gone through what we call like the idea maze? How deeply have they thought about this problem space? Do they have respect for every kind of past attempt? Because likely you're not the first person to try this problem. You know, do you understand why each past attempt has failed and what you're going to do differently? So that's that's certainly something that is, you know, from my own kind of lived experience, something we look for, um, you know, in in the founders we backed. And then, you know, again, I, I I sort of mentioned this earlier, but it just was shocking to me at how manual so much of the back office of these large financial institutions still are. 
you know, and these are thousands and thousands of folks, you know, sitting in Salt Lake City and Dallas and in places around the world, you know, manually reconciling trades, helping onboard vendors, dealing with compliance issues, you know, managing balance sheet or risk. Um, and I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for software and certainly for AI to have a big impact, you know, across those different, you know, kind of operational workflows. And um, maybe, again, maybe less visible to many entrepreneurs because it's sort of within the belly of the beast. But I think tremendous opportunity to, you know, build tools uh, that can help, you know, drive massive efficiencies and cost savings for, for these institutions and ultimately, you know, build very significant kind of enterprise software companies, you know, in doing so. And when you made the career decision to move away from your VC role at Spark Capital to founding a startup, like what was going through your head? Like, for example, was it more of a case of, I really do want to get hands-on experience building a company or like... I have this idea and I really think that there's something there. It's a little bit of both. You know, I, I think I'd always thought of myself, as I mentioned, as an entrepreneur. You know, I'd, I'd started companies as a kid. It was always very easy for me. It has always been easy for me to come up with business ideas. I think it's always been much harder to figure out which ones to pursue. Um, and, you know, my time at Spark was amazing. And again, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for, for that experience. Um, but I would often, you know, meet amazing entrepreneurs like Zach and Will from Plaid. And I'm just like, holy shit, I just want to go build this thing with you. Like, you guys are amazing. Like, you know, I don't want, like, I just want to jump in. And I think once I found something that I was particularly passionate, you know, about myself, it just, it, it never felt like risk. It was just very obvious to me, you know, that we, that I needed to go leave and do that. And actually all the credit to my wife who, um, was my girlfriend at the time, um, who for really kind of seeing this in me and recognizing that, you know, while there was a path to stay and, you know, as an investor, I think she understood that I probably wouldn't be fulfilled or, or, or happy unless I actually tried. And, you know, the reality is it, it, it is very challenging to build a company and, uh, it's one of the most painful experiences that I've ever gone through. And yet it's also the, by far and away, the most rewarding, you know, period in my career. And, um, and I think I, you learn a tremendous amount about yourself, you know, in, in your, what you're really good at, what you're bad at, your leadership, you know, and your capabilities. And I think I just really loved building, you know, a team, a brand, a culture, a product, um, you know, and at some point the company itself became the product. And, and that was also just a really interesting experience. And again, I try to kind of impart that wisdom or at least share all the mistakes that I made, you know, to the founders that I now work with today in, in hopes that they can avoid you know, a lot of the same mistakes that, uh, that I had had. How confident were you in the idea when you left to start the company? Pretty confident. You know, I, I think, you know, again, in retrospect, it was a challenging business. So, you know, you learn a lot being in it versus sort of the theory. Um, but I think the question I was sort of asking often was, Again, why are why are Peyton and I uniquely qualified to go build this business? Like, why are we the right founders to go do this? And you know, I think both my experience in venture and just meeting with lots of entrepreneurs and uh, you know seeing the kind of problem up close and personal was was real. And then Peyton's experience, both um, you know, having been a super talented engineer and leading kind of a real fintech organization and working with a lot of these APIs that were again just emerging. I mean. Peyton was running engineering in Venmo. Venmo became one of Plaid's first customers after we introduced them to them and they ripped out Yodley and inserted Plaid. And so anyway, we, we just felt like we were sort of uniquely positioned in 2013 to sort of understand the changing landscape of fintech 
and be able to apply these new technologies to this problem space of small businesses. And I think in many ways, I was also, I mean, I was very passionate about sort of the opportunity to build a brand in Bond Street. And we, and we sort of, um, and we, we hope to build the brand through the lens of our customers and sort of tell their stories. In many ways, we sort of took, I don't know, some ways the lessons from venture capital and tried to apply it to this kind of weird world of small business lending to really build an aspirational brand that people would want to be associated with. People want to raise venture capital from you know places like Andreessen, not just for the dollars, but to hopefully you know be part of the kind of extended you know organization and sort of family. And and I think that's not the relationship that most small business owners have with their banks. <laughs> uh, and so there was sort of an opportunity both to provide more you know fair rates and a much better customer experience, but also ideally build a brand that people you know cared about and and would tell their friends about. And I think that's actually something we did you know very successfully. Um, you know, my, my, um, one other litmus test that I use, and I often tell people, which is a weird one for how to determine, like, are you ready to go lead and start this particular company with this particular idea was I sort of had this like mother-in-law test <laughs> where, and literally this happened. It was always easy for me to come up with business ideas, harder to figure out which ones to pursue. Would I be willing to pitch my mother-in-law <laughs> to invest in, in, in the company? And my dad committed, like, not your parents. My parents weren't really in a position really to put a ton of capital in the business. And that's not, you know, and they love you anyway, and that's fine. I, you know, an investor, it's their job professionally to take risk and invest in your business. But what is, who is somebody that would otherwise be a very awkward conversation to ask for money, right? It could be a professor, maybe at Wharton, could be, you know, your mother-in-law. <laughs> but if you're willing to, to pitch your mother-in-law on the idea, you're probably going to be willing to pitch everybody else. And that's what you're going to spend 95% of your time as a founder doing is selling your vision, you know, to investors, to your co-founders, to prospective customers, to employees, to the press. Um, and so if you can sell your mother-in-law, you can probably sell anybody else. And if you're, if that's still uncomfortable, you're not willing to pound the table in that conversation, then, you know, you're probably not there yet. Sounds like a good proxy. <laughs> um, comparing your roles in VC to your role as you know, founder and CEO at Bond Street. What are some of the things that you liked and disliked about these different jobs? They're both amazing. And again, like grateful to have had both experiences. I think, I mean, the reality is being a founder is, uh, is just all consuming. You're on 24 seven, especially being the CEO. You know, it's all on you in a lot of ways. Like you, you are the collection of your team, but there are some things that only the CEO can do. The CEO needs to be the one to raise capital, to sell the business, to in large part hire and fire the leadership team, to manage the board and their expectations. So there's a lot of pressure, you know, in being the founder. Um, at the same time, again, it's it was one of, for me, one of the most creative processes of my life. And I I remember feeling like, you know, this thing was just this like tiny little kernel of an idea, you know, the year before. And then you look around the room and there's like a dozen people sitting around the table who've are you know, investing their careers in your idea. And it's just a cr- tremendous responsibility, right? And just, um, I just felt tremendous gratitude by looking around the, you know, the, the company often and seeing all these folks who who believed in me in this idea and were willing to kind of take a flyer on on building a company together. And so I think that, that process, again, of like building a team, building a culture, building a product, it's just a very creative one, and and it taps a very different part of my brain in in large part than 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 the investing side. Conversely, investing is um, 
again, such an interesting opportunity to meet so many passionate entrepreneurs, right, across lots of different industry categories. And it's selfishly, it's an amazing way to learn, right? Because you're learning from people who are far deeper in all these different areas than you are. And again, they're so passionate about their ideas. They're willing to kind of quit their jobs and, you know, go a hundred percent on this thing. And, um, and I find that, you know, kind of incredibly invigorating. I think for me, the reality though, is I actually like being somewhere in the middle. You know, I, I, I feel best somewhere between being an investor and an entrepreneur. And it's one of the reasons why I ultimately decided to join, you know, uh, A16Z, which was this notion of wanting to build a firm more than run a fund. And it, it's how I express that feeling of wanting to be between being an investor and an entrepreneur. And in my definition of a fund, you know, the objective function of a fund is basically how do I generate the most carry with the fewest people in the shortest amount of time possible? And a lot of fund managers, um, so that that's sort of a fund, right? A firm is how do I deliver exceptional returns, which is sort of a prerequisite for building a successful fund or building a successful firm. The second variable is a little bit the harder challenge, which, or at least maybe more creative challenge, which is how do I build, you know, enduring enterprise value or a source of compounding competitive advantage as a firm, basically like a moat in the way that a con- an entrepreneur would think of it building a moat. And a lot of fund managers, in my experience, don't spend any time thinking about the latter. Um, and I think firms are often those run by entrepreneurs first. If you ask Mark and Ben, are you an entrepreneur or an investor? A hundred percent, they would say, we are entrepreneurs who happen to be running an investment firm. And I think there's sort of a relentlessness and entrepreneurial spirit and drive in the way that this firm operates. We're not unique in this, but I think that, you know, they were sort of the archetype in my mind for doing this. And many of the general partners were, were successful entrepreneurs. Um, and, and so I've been really enjoying sort of both working with amazing founders and, and, and kind of investing, which feels very familiar, but also channeling some of that kind of builder energy into building the firm. And, and again, I think that starts first and foremost with Mark and Ben being entrepreneurs and, and it's really part of the culture of the organization, which is something I really, uh, really like. And having founded Bond Street and having also seen the overall lending sector also start to move towards you know, faster decisioning and a better customer experience, what do you think is next for the industry and what opportunities still remain in the space? I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for lending, again, to be embedded within you know kind of an existing software product or workflows we were talking about. And I think what you saw in small business lending was kind of that play out, you know, candidly, largely in the large payment companies. So you had companies like, you know, Square or Intuit or PayPal, um, you know, begin using their kind of distribution and the insights that they had on their customers, you know, financials to extend credit, you know, programmatically and be able to push a loan to the Square, you know, small business owners, as opposed to waiting, you know, for the small business owner to apply. And I think that, that, uh, you know, un- uniquely positions them. I think we'll see that play out in, in kind of lots of different industry categories. Um, there's certainly a tremendous amount of opportunity, I think, for AI to play a role, kind of lots of different roles in in the kind of process of lending, both for the lender to help, for example, project out you know cash flows and net income, you know, much more systematically than you know human underwrite underwriter might might do. I think at the same time, you know, that that product that we described, Beacon, was really that. It was sort of a, you know, 
mint.com or, or sort of PFM for the small business center. And the, and the hope was, how do we abstract away the complexity for the entrepreneur in managing the financial part of their business and their lives? Um, because most small business owners, the reality is they start their company because they're passionate about their product or their service or their craft, not to be the CFO, right? And so we tried solving their problems on the capital side, but if we could help them better understand their accounts payable, their accounts receivable, their working capital issues, I think AI is a tremendous opportunity to um, help entrepreneurs anticipate those challenges much more pro- proactively and programmatically um, and really, yeah, give them kind of the toolkits or, you know, put a CFO in their pocket in some ways, which is, I think could have a tremendous, you know, kind of transformative impacts on on small businesses and hopefully our economy. So, I mean, those are just a few examples in the small business context, but I think that extends probably across lots of different, you know, asset classes within within lending. And finally, we'd love to wrap up with a lightning round of questions. Um, so to start with, what fintech vertical are you most passionate about? We're, again, spending a ton of time, again, kind of at this intersection of AI and financial services. I think we're, we're incredibly excited about, uh, you know, the opportunities, again, for generative AI to have significant impacts, as I mentioned earlier, on the operational workflows of large financial institutions to kind of change the user experience and provide kind of new you know, modalities for for both consumers and, and small business owners to sort of engage with their financials and, um, you know, liter- live kind of more productive financial lives. Um, so I feel like it's still early, but that's definitely an area we're spending a tremendous amount of time in. And if anybody's building, you know, in that intersection, we certainly want to chat with you. Absolutely. Um, top book recommendation? Uh, top is hard. Um, <laughs> we spend a lot of time on, on Goldman, I guess. So and I, I read a lot of financial history. I would recommend this book despite having worked there, but the partnership was actually a really interesting history of Goldman Sachs. And what you realize is that firm was actually one of the most entrepreneurial places in the world for like 140 years. It wasn't a business built through M&A, you know, unlike a JP Morgan or a Bank of America or, or many others. It was a business really built brick by brick by entrepreneurial people raising their hand and saying, you know, I want to go build Europe or I want to go build the wealth management division. I want to build the you know, merchant banking or private equity armed. And, um, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's an incredible history and, um, definitely worth a read for anybody interested in, in financial history. You know, it conveniently ends in 2008, so just before the financial crisis. So it misses, you know, some of the recent history, but, uh, the first 140 years were, were pretty interesting. So I know we've touched on this a little bit, but what's an emerging company that you're really excited about? Well, you know, it's hard for us to cherry pick, but maybe I'll give you uh, the portfolio, you know, view of uh, the last few investments we've made, um, you know, which we're excited about, obviously. So one is um, a company called Moment, and uh, Moment is essentially building, you know, an API that sits across uh, all the different bond trading venues. So they sit across market access and TradeWeb and BondPoint and several others and make it very easy to embed fixed income investments in any application. Um, so if you're the technology selling into RAs or wealth management, you know, they're partnering with a number of those companies. You know, they announced a big partnership with Apex, which is the le- leading kind of clearing and custody. I think Bill, the CEO of Apex, was on this podcast, um, you know, a few months ago. So Apex and Moment are partnering um, to roll out, again, fixed income investing to all of Apex's, you know, 220 clients. So uh, super excited about that business. Um, and it was really smart young team of Quonset of Citadel securities who had built a lot of the kind of systematic, um, you know, credit investing, you know, uh, infrastructure there. Um, 
and again, a really interesting why now, obviously, in the in the rate environment, where you know, you know, in, in lower interest rates, people are focused on equities. You know, now if you can get you know close to five percent, you know, risk free, um, you know, why aren't you investing in in treasuries or municipal bonds or corporate debt? And 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 in moment is really trying to democratize access to that. You know, another company we invested in, uh, you know, before we announced, I think in in November of last year, was a company called Setpoint. Um, you know, Setpoint is really solving a problem that I felt firsthand at Bond Street. You know, we mentioned uh, we had nine hundred million dollars in debt capacity. You know, so much time and money and energy is spent. Uh, you know, like we did at Bond Street on the front end of the customer experience, right? Uh, on streamlining the loan application and you know working with all different APIs on 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 kind of making that a more efficient process. And yet, behind the scenes, our inventory essentially and our you know most valuable and important kind of counterparty relationship was you know Jeffries and this large. 40 Act mutual fund who gave us the $900 million of debt. And yet the process of managing and reporting on those warehouse facilities was basically, you know, an Excel file or, you know, bubble gum and shoelaces, <laughs> um, which is kind of insane, you know, given if you trip, you know, a covenant in your credit agreement, it can be lights out, you know, for an early stage fintech company. And so what Setpoint is really doing is providing a software tool for fintech originators to gather all of the required documentation we need to originate in our case small business loans they're working with all the different types of consumer lenders real estate companies small business you know players etc they gather all the documentation in their SaaS product they act as what's called a diligence agent validating that that loan fits within the eligibility criteria set by you know the lender so the jeffries or the mutual fund and then they automate all the reporting on the performance of that portfolio on an ongoing basis against the typically complicated set of requirements that they're imposing, which is, you know, delinquency, default rates, concentration limits, um, which again was a giant and very complicated Excel file at Bond Street, now, you know, can become software. And so it gives both the fintech company kind of peace of mind and drives efficiency and avoids error. It also gives the lender, you know, peace of mind that the borrower, you know, in those sub, you know, often multi-hundred million dollar, you know, warehouse relationships. Um, you know, are adhering and are compliant, you know, to the credit agreement and the performance metrics that they'd set. And so they're seeing, you know, some exciting uh, traction, you know, on both with some of the largest lenders and, and many, uh, you know, really exciting fintech, you know, companies as well. So anyway, two examples, we have a lot of other amazing companies in our portfolio, but, um, you know, which we're very excited about, but hopefully that gives you a, a taste for some of the companies where we've been working with. Yes, thank you. Uh, and finally, any suggestions for content for someone looking to learn more? Well, obviously, you know, we have to plug uh, the A16Z, uh, you know, blog. Uh, we write a tremendous amount of, you know, content and we we really share kind of our, our theses and, and uh, you know, ideas very publicly. And, you know, we want you to engage. So, um, you know, disagree with us, you know, tweet at us, tell us why you have a better idea. Uh, we'd love to hear it. Um, and we try to do that, you know, around the world. You know, we've, we've become translating you know a lot of our our pieces you know into spanish and portuguese and french and other other languages so we're trying to kind of meet people where they are um we just did uh, for example really interesting you know kind of piece on global payments and uh kind of dove deep into the differences between you know uh you know upi in india versus pics in brazil you know versus the potential for fed now in the us and you know other payment schemes around the around the world and um 
I think that sort of perspective is a, is an interesting one where you can draw analogies in other markets. So definitely have to plug uh, you know our content um, and and a lot of the other verticals, obviously uh, across the firm. But you know, Mark Rubenstein is another amazing uh, Substack that I read religiously. It's a, a, a Substack called Net Interest. Um, he was a former hedge fund PM uh, who covered financials and just really really understands kind of the plumbing of how these businesses operate and. Um, has you know, I think is similarly passionate about this notion of like firm over fund, and you'll see him writing a lot about you know Apollo and Blackstone and kind of the evolution of alternative asset management. Uh, just super super sharp guy, so um, you know highly recommend um, that. And then you know this podcast has been a, a great listen for me, so I appreciate you you having me on. And yeah, lots of great content out there, and uh, no shortage of, of great ideas. Thank you, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me, Keely. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria, and until next time, this is your host, Kaylee Costello.